0: Right, we'll be going international. Show and Bryce Peace and Sophie Mokwena sitting here with me. All right, quite a bit to get through, and uh, we have the African continent and all the developments. Uh, that attempted coup in Gabon, or was it a coup or not? We'll get into that shortly. And of course, Show and Bryce Peace always great to see. Show and he's in studio with me, as is Sophie McQuena. So let's get into it uh, because I'm looking at the time, and I know between the three of us, this is going to take some doing to get uh, very far. But Sophie, let's start here on. On the African continent, let's start with Gabon. What happened yes, there?
1: Yes, indeed, there were reports of uh, uh, a coup in Gabon, but immediately there was a reaction from government that uh, they have been able to manage the situation. People were arrested, the two were killed, and uh, apparently things are under control. But for me. What's surprising is that uh, weekend we received information that the United States of America is sending 80 soldiers to protect its citizens. So clearly, the US had intelligence information and they knew that this was going to happen. And many other countries, of course, of course because they do have embassies and high commissioners. And unfortunately, the president is still in Morocco, recovering from stroke. So. It's a very difficult one. It's Zimbabwe or not Zimbabwe.
0: And, and of course, we're not surprised because uh, the U.S. intelligence machines, say of them what you like, it works. And they generally tend to know what's going to happen before those who should know are
2: in the know. Sherwin? I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily agree with that characterization. If you look at the the, the the question of Iraq, of course, it was faulty U.S. intelligence that led the United States into a conflict with Saddam Hussein. And that has led to the this protracted conflict. But was it deliberate? I don't know. I think it was faulty intelligence. I mean, they presented, you remember, Colin Powell was then the Secretary of State, was in the Security Council with maps and figures and pointing at certain ish, uh, places where they thought these weapons of mass destruction. And this, if you look at uh, historical perspectives now, this was a, there was a big conflict and a lot of pressure from the White House of George W. Bush. And, and there's a movie out on Dick, Dick Cheney, who was the central figure in terms of that war against Iraq. And mm. you see kind of the pressure that was put on the intelligence community by political actors in the White House that led to those conclusions, and then they were presented as fact to the international community. Which is why I
0: ask, was that not deliberate? Because, uh, you know, one tends to get that sort of sense if you look at particularly the role that Dick Cheney played right. in that particular
2: war. Look, intelligence is never 100% accurate. Intelligence agents will always say we, we, can, we have a 90%, uh, we can validate it up to 90%, 75%, and they will present that to the political actors who then take those decisions. So yes, it was. I think there was political pressure in that instance, but I am just, I want our viewers to understand that intelligence isn't foolproof. And, mm. and so I don't know the answer necessarily. You know
1: what, Sakina? Like partially, I agree with Sherwin. You know, last year I attended a women function. The former director general in South Africa's intelligence services said they want the Americans, I think it was Kenya bombing or Tanzania, uh, they didn't listen mm. to South Africa's report or the intelligence services saying, hey, Your embassy is going to be bombed. And it did happen. So much as South Africa, a small country, was able to pick that up, America couldn't. And they didn't even believe because I think this... "Ah." That who are are they whole
2: country. And there have been several State Department uh, reports saying that you know uh, citizens should be aware of possible terrorist attacks in the in South Africa. And you you, you've seen the outrage from South Africa's citizenry uh, as to whether this is actually factual or not. Of course, there haven't been those terrorist attacks, and yet those uh, warnings went out to Americans that were traveling here.
0: Mm. Okay, Ali Bongo. And uh, the the United States and, um, you know, as you say, they say they're sending people to protect their citizens. But uh, this is a president uh, who has a family history. They have a dynasty, as it were, in Gabon. And um, when does he go or who is propping him up at this point? <laughs> You'd recall even his election was so controversial.
1: You'd recall right. that Jinping, the former AU commissioner, was contesting those elections, and the results were contested. And finally, he took office because, like you are saying, you know, once a dictator, always a dictator. The father was a dictator. If I were to give a short example, I went there during the state visit of Tabo Mbegi in Gabon. When we arrived at the airport, you know, they brought a car, you know, slatla, open coupe, and they drove with President Mbegi and that uh, President Ali Bongo a distance of Johannesburg to Pretoria. We, in an open car. And Mbeki was so angry, angry, security (laughs) risk. And this fanfare, people lined up from here to Pretoria. Hot women waiting the whole day in the sun. And we were so angry. And then we went to a press conference. When the press conference was supposed to take place, he was very short. He used to wear high heels. They didn't bring the steps for the podium. He didn't. He went back and there was no press conference. Big was so embarrassed he had to apologize. That's how arrogant the Bongos are.
2: But also I think it's worth noting that Jean Ping, who was the opposition candidate in that uh, disputed election, which, uh, which Ali Bongo won, is uh, married to the sister of the incumbent. So when you talk about dynastic politics, it's not really going to move that far mm. from the Bongo family, even if Jean Ping comes in, because there is a marriage there that connects the two families.
1: And mm. the father was married to the president
0: <laughs> of uh, the Congo, Brazzaville.
2: Uh, as you see, the, sl- the slope is slippery. A,
0: a very, very <laughs> slippery. But, but, but you know, I want to talk about Trump as well and, 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 well, and what's been happening slope. there. Slippery slope but also about uh, South Africa, the UN and our um, uh, tenure once again in the UN Security Council. Let's start there.
2: So we have divided government now in the United States. Remember the first two years of this presidency, uh, the Republican Party had control of the White House, they had control of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Now we have moved into an era of, of divided government. Ask Barack Obama how that worked out for him after they passed that signature healthcare legislation soon after, sort of 18 months into his presidency. Suddenly all three levers of government were now divided. Republicans controlled both the House, they then controlled the Senate, and Obama couldn't pass any legislation. I think from a legislative point of view, uh, Donald Trump's work, his uh, America First policy will face some appeal, but also now you have the investigative powers that Congress now has. The Appropriations Committee, the Intelligence Committee, these I chairs of these committees are now Democrats, and they can subpoena the president's tax returns, which we haven't seen. They can subpoena witnesses to come back in terms of the, the investigation into possible Russian collusion. You are going to see a lot more scrutiny of this president than you have under the Republican leadership of those both those chambers over the last two years. This is going to be a tough year. And in addition to that, in the background, you have the Robert Mueller report that is investigating possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And where is that going to go? We've seen his. Personal lawyer Michael Cohen plead guilty to tax uh, uh, campaign vi- campaign finance violations at, according to him, at the instruction of the president. So how high will this go in terms of uh, who will fall in in this investigation? And the speculation is is that 2019 is going to be a decisive year for President Trump, whether in his favour or not. So
1: mm, and globally, um, he's got challenges. I mean, with G eight. He created enemies within the G8. He created enemies within the G20. He tried to use the North Korea matter. And now North Korea is causing to China. Mm -hmm. He's fighting with China based on the trade relations. Yeah, even globally, he's got serious, serious challenges. He's fighting with South Africa on the land question also.
2: But but you know, Sophie, that Donald Trump will tell you that everybody loves him. He has good relationships with everybody. <laughs> Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron.
0: You almost said that in his <laughs> accent. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing about Trump is, Sherwin, and I would have thought that Trump would have been impeached long before now.
2: Well, impeachment is not a, a quick process. I think if you look at the example of the impeachment of uh, Bill Clinton, mm. that was also a year-long process. I think we're all now so we're observing it you know technology makes us uh, a little bit more impatient I suppose but this is always going to be a long standing issue and because he has such broad uh, latitude in terms of this investigation I think there's a great deal that is being uncovered there are uh, uh, state-wide investigations in New York State in various states so it's not just the Mueller investigation but he's got such broad leverage so the depths into which he is investigating whether you're looking at the Trump Foundation the Trump uh, organization at large whether they were wanting to open open up a new Trump building in Moscow, whether where was that meeting with the Russians before the election. These this the, the, the scope here is broad, so this report is going to be a definitive moment in, in, in politics in the United but States. But
0: how much protection does he still enjoy? Well, point. they
2: control the Senate and there is a br- real re- reluctance from Senate Republicans to take on this president because a lot of them are running in the 2020 election. Remember, every two years is a new election cycle. We've just concluded the midterms and what do we do now? People are announcing their candidacy. You saw Elizabeth Warren, the senator, the senior senator from Massachusetts, announce you will see a drip-drip effect of of, of of Democrats announcing their candidacy. The question is, will he be challenged from within his party? Remember, there are a number of senators that didn't run in this election. Jeff Flake of Arizona stepped down, but he was one of the Republican critics of this president who has been very clear that someone from within the party needs to challenge this president. Nikki Haley, she's no longer the U.S. ambassador. Her timing is Everybody's sort of of watching what her next move is going to be. If he gets impeached or if this Mueller report is is critical of this presidency, you'll see a a number of Republicans jump into the race.
0: Ah, That Nikki Haley one will be very interesting. She's very
2: popular. She's very popular.
0: Very interesting. And and, uh, Sophie, uh, just looking at the U.N. Security Council and South Africa and uh, looking back at our track record in uh, that uh, particular institution, uh, what should we expect here?
1: Well, I think South Africa will continue to work together or to seek or to support China, you know, the, the BRICS countries and, of course, the South-South. You know, mm-hmm. they will work on issue for region, continental and South-South and BRICS. Before they can really embrace, perhaps your America, your Britain,
2: your France. It's an interesting point, Sophie, because it's a question I put to Ambassador Machila about this. You know, are you going to side with BRICS? Is that just the fate to complete that we should all expect? And they said no. And I think you, we have seen South Africa historically differ. Uh, With Russia and China, I think on the Myanmar vote, for example, in the General Assembly, China and Russia voted against that resolution. So this is not Security Council, but I think it's instructive. Mm. And South Africa uh, broke ranks after our critical reporting, actually. We also had Human Rights Watch, that is watching them very closely. And initially, South Africa abstained in that third committee vote of the General Mm. Assembly, which is the Human Rights Committee, basically condemning the authorities in Myanmar Myanmar. for how they were treating the Rohingya and I think we were just sort of flummoxed as to uh, what the reason for an abstention was and I think they took another look at this the ambassador has been very clear we are going to take each country the specific country and analyze the situation there so let's take the DRC as an example yeah
0: that's, a good right, one. that's
2: the big one. Mm. South Africa thrust into their first week uh, on the council and what's the biggest issue? A yes. country, mm. biggest elections, one of the largest peacekeeping missions in the world. South Africa has troops there and South Africa has been very clear that we are going to we are going to be principled about our approach in council. We are going to infuse this with the legacy of Nelson Mandela, but it doesn't mean we are going to side with the West or the East on issues. Mm. What we want to do is create peace building and, and really ensure that, that the process is followed to, to the book. So let's wait and see how they do this. I don't think they're necessarily just going to side with BRICS and China. I think it's going to be a very intuitive uh, uh, term in the council. We have to watch closely. And a
0: very curious one, you know, given what has happened before, uh, given the way we have voted before in that Security Council, I think many of us are uh, uh, actually adopting the approach of wait and see. Remember when
2: we voted for 1973, which was the no-fly zone in Libya, Russia, Russia abstained. China Mm. abstained. That's why that resolution passed. We voted in favor of it. Mm. So we broke ranks there too. But
1: I think at that time (laughs) it was the internal politics. It was the internal politics. The South African government, the governing party, doesn't want to say it in public. It was the internal politics. Mm. You come in, you are a new president, you think you can do things differently because the previous one used to do things in a wrong way in the Security Council. You're trying to impress. And unfortunately, Disaster, disaster. You don't even listen to your ambassador who's based at the UN when he says, mm-hmm. let's take this direction. You decided, no, I'm the Alpha and Omega. We're going this way.
0: Disaster, disaster. <laughs> and we hear the South African public raising that question Even today, over and over, when we talk about South Africa in the UN Security Council, people are very
2: wary. Look, people are very interested in how South Africa will behave now. I think the new dawn is something that the the president, uh, his team has has visited uh, continents and big countries, the developed world looking for investment, and this becomes part of the narrative, right? How are we going to behave when we have the the, the keys to to, to this powerful setting, which is the Security Council? So uh, I think what... uh, you know the human rights watch or the the center for global protection and all these ngos what they want from south africa is to uphold its democratic values uh, enshrined in the constitution at the you know, when South Africa breaks ranks, for example, with all the African countries on uh, resolutions in the General Assembly dealing with the LGBTQ community, they're the only African country saying we cannot back uh, stand with Africa, with the Africa group or the, uh, the Arab group on this issue because our constitution dictates otherwise. So why do we not use that constitution as the bedrock of all the decisions, decisions that we take moving forward?
0: I think that's well stated there. And then uh, just finally, the US-China trade talks. And of course, this has been an ongoing one. Uh, we've dragged it straight into to 2019. I was listening to the news and Donald Trump saying, uh, you know, he thinks, you know, they've had quite a fruitful meeting. Yeah, so they've
2: just just concluded three days of talks. There's a trade delegation, a U.S. trade delegation in Beijing. They're coming out, there saying positive things, they're positive vibes. The Chinese foreign foreign ministry earlier today said that we will release the the results of that soon. So uh, South Africans should just remember the backdrop of this. Uh, Donald Trump has basically threatened to impose... um, tariffs are on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports into, into the United States if they do not restructure the economy, if they don't open it up to more competition, uh, and uh, if uh, the, the, the trade volumes between uh, the two countries are more equitable. What we're hearing now is that there might be a deal on the table. There could be something announced soon. But remember what? you mean, the two elephants fight, right? It's the little guys that get trampled, the grass underneath the feet. And if you listen to uh, – um, uh, um, The the Reserve Bank Governor, Chaniacho, if you listen to the IMF um, managing director, Christine Lagarde, tariffs are not a good idea. Protectionism is not a good idea for the world economy. So if this were to happen, Sakina, small developing countries, emerging economies like South Africa that are in a very precarious position anyway – are going to suffer the most.
0: And I knew time was going to be the enemy, but we have to talk about South Africa, Nigeria, two of the largest economies on the continent going to elections this year. Yes, uh, big
1: stories, uh, all eyes on South Africa. Uh, the ruling party or the governing party, the ANC, facing challenges internally and externally with the uh, opposition parties hoping that uh, they can uh, uh, reduce the power of the ANC. And then in, um, in Nigeria also, Buhari is facing a stiff challenge from the opposition party. So uh, from foreign side, we'll be monitoring and preparing to cover the elections in Nigeria. And I am definitely sure the politics team here at home, we'll be focusing on South Africa and Botswana, <laughs> of course, and Khamer is fighting with Masisi.
2: Hey. Look, at it, here's another opportunity. South Africa, the focus on in the international community at the Security Council. We were just, just the chair of SADC and the chair of BRICS. And now we have a big election, a monumental historic election. The ISC has a very important role to play. South Africa needs to show what african democracy looks like
0: Mm, and it's going to be particularly interesting given our uh, notion of south african exceptionalism you know how do we now deal with this historic uh, like today the
1: president meeting at galungu from zambia discussing the drc crisis and south africa with the
0: peacekeeping force and also the intervention force there is very critical well, I tell you, this could go on forever and ever. And thanks for all the kind messages. Uh, thanks, Show and Bryce, Peace, uh, Sophie Mokwena.